Thank you for your patience. I appreciate it very much. <clears throat> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we're having this weekend. Help us to honor you in all of our ways. And Lord, in the things that I'm about to say uh, to these dear folks, I pray you help me to speak clearly and faithfully according to your word. I pray that you will use uh, this message to feed our souls and to stir us up to obedience to you, to, uh, for zeal for your kingdom as well, Lord. We pray that you would also strengthen us and show us, Lord, how we are to shake our, off our own captivity and to help the church in our own nation, in our own culture, to also shake off her captivity, Lord. Give us a passion to do this. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Good morning. In the last talk, I demonstrated to you, I believe I demonstrated to you, that true Christianity and secularism cannot happily coexist. That try to weld those two things together is syncretism. It's like trying to get Dagon to stay up next to the Ark of the Covenant. You all know who Dagon is, right? I concluded by telling you that the church is largely captive to the idolatry of secularism and that we have surrendered the public square to our foe. We've given that over, that ground, we've allowed it to be captured. So now I'm going to discuss the weapons that we must utilize in shaking off our captivity and in laying siege to the public square and the idols that have been raised there against the knowledge of Christ. And I did use the word weapons, and that means I'm using the language of violence and war, and I'm using that language very intentionally, not because I'm a jihadist, but because that is how Scripture speaks of our struggle. It's important for us to remember that, especially in our day and age. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 and verses 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's our battle. This is our conflict. We need to note here, that Paul does not follow up the exhortation to put on the full armor of God by telling us to play nice and not to offend. He doesn't say put on the full armor of God because you're fighting against Satan and all of his minions, so go out there and be nice. Right? Don't offend people. And when I say that, of course, be gracious. Try not to offend. Let Christ do the offending. But you know what I mean. He's telling us to prepare for war. He tells us to put on the whole armor of God of God. And you do not put on armor when you're sitting down to tea, do you? You put on armor, armor when you're going into a fight. And we are in a fight, ladies and gentlemen, a war with cosmic powers of darkness, and we dare not trifle with them. Do you realize who our battle is against? I don't know how often this is discussed in reform circles, because we're afraid of becoming charismatics, um, or Pentecostal, perhaps, I'm not sure. 
But we don't want to talk about the reality of the enemy that we're facing. We don't want to be the guy who sees a demon behind every bush, right? And who tells you when you have a cold that you have to cast out the demon of colds, right? Because that's not what we're talking about, and that's not what Paul's talking about here. But we do need to realize that we have an adversary, a very powerful adversary, one who is stronger than us, one who is smarter than us, one who has been doing his deceiving and ruining for far longer than any of us have been alive. And this is our foe. We cannot trifle with him, and we dare not think that they can be conquered through political correctness or by respecting everyone's opinion. They cannot be conquered that way. We must use the weapons that God has given us, and we must use them as weapons with all of our hearts. So to begin this morning, I'm going to read to you from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. And then I'm going to read to you, after that, a lengthy quote from the expositor's Bible commentary. I try not to read from Bible commentaries. I try to limit, when I, at least to a congregation. I read them myself, but I don't like quoting them because it can become a disconnect for the listeners. But I'm going to do it for two reasons. First, I want you to understand that only the church has the means capable of rescuing a culture from its captivity to sin. Do you follow? Only the church has the means capable of rescuing a, rescuing a culture from its captivity to sin. And since we only, only we have the means for rescuing a culture, that means we also have the duty to do it. The responsibility to do it. There's a reason why God has given us these weapons, and that is not to sit on them. I can't remember who it was. I want to say it was Doug Wilson, but I can't remember for sure. Someone I know and respect and read talks about how Christians, especially Reformed Christians, like to sit in their basement and pull out their sword and polish it and look at it, but when it comes to going outside, they leave it there. And I don't know what we take outside, perhaps our plastic light-up Luke Skywalker lightsabers. <laughs> But we leave our sores in the basement. We can't do that. That's hating our neighbors when we do that. Okay? So the second thing I want you to know, I want you to see clearly why Satan is desperate to keep the church in captivity to secularism. Notice what Paul says here back in Ephesians 6, that we need to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, do you know what you have to do in order to stand against the schemes of the devil? You have to be able to identify those schemes, don't you? You have to know when something is afoot, when he's at work. And that doesn't mean seeing a demon behind every bush, but it means being smart and thinking strategically and realizing when he is at work so you can resist him. So this is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not only the of, fle of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So here's the quote from the expositor's Bible commentary. The phrase panhupsoma, that's Greek, and that's, it's translated as every lofty opinion, refers to any human act or attitude that forms an obstacle 
to the emancipating knowledge of God contained in the gospel of Christ crucified and therefore keeps men in oppressive bondage to sin. And I'm, the reason I'm quoting this scholar to you is to show you that I'm not crackers, okay? That he is agreeing with what I'm telling you, which is that we have these weapons for the sake of setting sinners free to emancipate them from their oppressive bondage to sin. Closely related is the expression pan noema, every thought in Greek. By this, Paul probably, probably means every human machination or foul design that temporarily frustrates the divine plan, every act of disobedience, and so needs to be forcibly to be reduced to obedience to Christ. I love this commentator. Forcibly reduced to obedience to Christ. Right? Forcibly. It is not a case of the Christian's effort to force all his thoughts to be pleasing to Christ. So he's not, Paul is here not saying, you take all of your bad thoughts and make them obedient to Christ. That's a really comfortable interpretation of that passage. Right? That fits nicely into the box of a private life. I have these weapons to keep myself free from idols. That's not what Paul is calling us to here. Rather, the picture seems to be that of a military operation in enemy territory that seeks to thwart every single hostile plan of battle so that there will be universal allegiance to Christ. Amen. A military operation in enemy territory. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. This is what we're doing. This is what we are called to. We live in enemy territory. It's a military operation. And our objective is to thwart every single hostile plan of battle so there will be universal allegiance to Christ. Now, does that sound familiar to any other passage that I've read to you in this past day and a half or whatever? How about Matthew 28? What does Jesus want us to establish in the earth? Universal allegiance to Christ, right? Go forth and disciple the nations, baptizing the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. So again, only the church has the weapons capable of setting sinners free from bondage to sin. Our weapons have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now something else I want you to recognize here is that our foe, the one who is scheming to destroy our neighbors, our nation, he has no answer to our weapons. He has no answer to them. He does not have divine power, does he? He has to rely on nothing but craftiness and deceitful schemes. And that's an important point for us to consider. Because if our foe is to maintain his strongholds, and he has strongholds, doesn't he? Those strongholds exist. Then he has to deceive the church into disarming herself. Do you follow? Because our weapons have divine power, and he does not have the means to resist them. If he is to maintain his strongholds against the church, then he first has to deceive us into disarming ourselves. Because if we are not disarmed, what are we going to do to him? We're going to overthrow him with the weapons God has given us. So he has, to, he has to trick us. He has to deceive us. He has to seduce us into laying aside those weapons that we have been given. And that's what I want to talk about now for the rest of the time, is how that has happened and how we need to remedy that problem within the church. And I want to give you an analogy. 
<clears throat> Think of two armies that are soon to enter into combat, all right? And this is not in the age of guns. This is in the age of, of sword and hand-to-hand combat. One of the armies has steel swords, and the other army has wooden swords. Now, who's going to win? The, the army with the steel swords is going to win, of course. Now, the captain of the wooden sword army knows that he has no chance. He sees his foes. He sees the swords that they are wielding. They are expertly made, forged of the finest steel. And he looks at what his army has, and it is composed. Their swords are obviously made of wood. So while he does not have good swords, right, he is, he is a crafty liar. That is what he's good at. He can lie. So what he does is, rather than meeting his opposing army in open battle, he disguises himself as a master swordsman and he enters the camp of his enemy. And he floods their camp with reports warning them that their swords are flawed and poorly made, unreliable, and hopelessly useless against wooden swords. All right, so that's the lie that he disperses among the enemy camp. Now let me ask you this. If, this, if the army, if the good guys with the metal swords, with the steel swords, if they believe these lies, what's going to happen in that battle? What will the outcome be? If they lay down their swords so they can have wooden swords too, who's going to win? Do you follow? And I'm telling you that that is essentially what our enemy has done to the church, specifically in our nation. What is our sword? The Bible. Our sword is the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit. That's also from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. It's scripture. We're also told, told in the book of Hebrews in chapter 4 and verse 12 that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And this is why... Honestly, we as sinners don't mind having the Word of God blunted either because we don't like having our hearts divided by the Word, do we? We don't like having that, two -edged, that, that, that blade that is sharper than any two-edged sword being applied to our hearts. Now, the Word of God has divine power because why? Because it was inspired by God, 2 Timothy 3.16. He forged that, this sword, our sword, by His Spirit. Is there anything else? Do we have any other book, any other authority available to us that is inspired by God? No, I'm glad you're all shaking your head. That's, that's good. No, the only thing we have is the Bible. That's the only weapon we have that has been inspired by the Spirit of God. So it goes without saying that if you intend to take a people captive, what do you have to do to them first? You have to disarm them like that evil captain of the army did and i think that as we look back through history you will find a commonality between those churches that have been taken captive all right and do you know what i mean when i'm talking about churches that have been taken captive i'm talking about denominations fellowships whatever you want to call them that at one point were faithful christian churches who actually preached the gospel and now, today, they're ordaining women, they're ordaining homosexuals, all right, cats and dogs and whatever, okay? And they're not following Christ anymore. They're apostate. They're no true church. 
We see that. There are lots of examples of those in our own nation, aren't there? And I think when you look at the process that led to them falling away, that led to where they're at now compared to where they were a century or two ago, you will find that they share this thing in common, that they abandoned their confidence in the authority of Scripture. That's what happens every time you see a denomination or a church fall away. They abandon their confidence in the authority of the Word of God. Why? For one reason. They came to view the Bible as unreliable and outdated and rejected its inspiration and inerrancy. Across the board, they decided the Bible's wrong. They decided to tweak inspiration. And once that happens, you see, once our enemy is able to convince us into laying down our sword, we are taken captive every time. Every time. Here's why. Once Scripture is rejected as our highest authority, we turn to other authorities at that point, don't we? And who are those other authorities that we can turn to? I've already asked you this morning, what other things do we have, what other authorities and writings do we have that are inspired? We don't have any others that are from God. We have His Word and that's it. So who are these other authorities that we turn to Instead of scripture, we turn to culture, we turn to the experts from the ivory towers of the academy, we turn to the opinions of unbelieving men is where we turn, instead of the word of God. So the church stops believing and obeying what God has said and is instead taken captive by human traditions. That's what ends up happening. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul warned us about in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8, where he tells us to see to it that no one takes us captive through empty deceit into human tradition and philosophy that is based on the principles of this world rather than upon Christ. That's what he's warning us against. Don't be taken captive. But when you set the authority of Scripture aside and the inspiration of Scripture and the inerrancy of Scripture you have a recipe for being taken captive. That is how we end up with lady pastors, ordained homosexuals, denials of the virgin birth, stay-at-home dads, CEO moms, couples not having kids until they're almost old enough to be grandparents, and apes evolving into men and babies murdered in the womb. All those things are in our culture because the church has allowed herself to be disarmed, because the church has allowed herself to be seduced by the serpent and his lies. Understand that this is the very same scheme and strategy that our foe has been using from the beginning. Because what was the thing that the enemy questioned in the garden with Eve? Did God really say? He went after his word. He caused her to doubt his word. And she tried to put up a fight. She at first said, well, yes, God really did say that. And then what did the serpent just come out and say blatantly? He's lying. He's lying. His word is not true. His word is not reliable. Please, emblazon that into your hearts and minds. Whenever you hear someone saying to you that the reliability, the trustworthiness, the historicity, the truthfulness of the word of God is suspect, 
know immediately the source of that criticism. It is not from the Spirit of God. It is not from Christ. It is from the same forked tongue that tickled Eve's ear, brothers and sisters. And how should you respond to that? Like this? Well, let me give that a thought. No! You know, once you respond like that to the enemy, you are finished. You are finished. Yes, let's enter into a dialogue, Prince of Darkness, please. How did our Lord respond in his wilderness temptation with Scripture? He did not say, well, let's debate this devil. He simply said, it is written. It is written. That's how we need to respond. And you will be laughed at for that today. <laughs> oh, you poor redneck. You poor backwards, backwards, intolerant whatever. Ha, ha, ha. You say it is written. You believe that. And you say, absolutely. God cannot lie. His word is true. Understand that. Because if we grant that the Bible is mistaken, because we are so much more enlightened now, because we have iPhones and Starbucks and, 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 and. Listen to what the Spirit says to us through Paul. And the reason, I, before I say that, the reason I bring up iPhones and Starbucks is when I'm discussing these issues with other pastor friends, and I do have other pastor friends who reject the inspiration of Scripture and who reject the authority of Scripture and say that it is mistaken and it is fallible and it is not inerrant and so on and so forth. And I say, well, how, can you, how audacious of you to say that? Who are you to say that about God? Who are you to appeal to these human, fallen, depraved experts and to, and to take their opinion as an authority over the Word of God? And they'll, they appeal to technology almost every time. We have iPhones. <laughs> I'm not kidding. They say, look what science does. Oh, so cell phones demonstrate the, the errancy and fallibility of the Word of God because we can make cell phones, right? No. That's stupid. Do you see that that's a dumb argument? Okay. Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. When I was writing these things, I had preached this series of sermons a year ago at my own church, and I've tweak them for all of you because most of you here are students at a secular university am i correct in that i had you raise your hands yesterday i won't have you do it again now let me tell you you already know this but as students in a secular university you are in an environment that is overtly hostile to the word of god overtly hostile am i right or am i wrong does iu recognize the authority of scripture or are you going to be laughed at when you quote it and say this is true or face palmed over. Oh, you had such promise until you quoted the Bible. You have been or will be ridiculed, questioned, and held in suspicion for taking God at his word. That's going to happen. Realize that. 
you have been or will be pressured to reject the inspiration and inerrancy and authority of Scripture and to instead submit yourself to what? Submit yourself to human traditions. And what are the human traditions today that you are going to be called to submit yourself to? Throw, name them. You know what they are. Name some human traditions today that you are going to be called to submit yourself to instead of Scripture, especially on a campus like IU. Education. Education. Career. Career, yes. How, any others? How about Darwinism? Right? Secularism. I've got that one written down. Who said feminism? Thank you. Yes, feminism is a big one. Be liberated, sister. <laughs> From the tyrannical patriarchy of that nasty God in that nasty book who just wants you pregnant and barefoot in the kitchen for all eternity. Hallelujah and amen. <laughs> Atheism. Socialism, toleranceism, which is my word for moral relativism, etc., etc., etc. That is what you're going to be pressured to, to embrace instead. I was just talking with Alex, I think it was Alex yesterday, who was telling me that in many cases, unfortunately, a lot of college students who start off as Christians or professing Christians during their first year of school finish the year as non Christians, as unbelievers. Why? Because they are ridiculed. They cave to the pressure. They are disarmed. And so they are left defenseless against the temptation to abandon Christ and to embrace the world. And so they embrace the world. You cannot let that happen. You cannot let that happen. Do not fall for these schemes, brothers and sisters. Do not let yourself be disarmed and taken captive. Hold fast to the word of life. Wield the sword of the Spirit. Remember that no one who puts his trust in Jesus will ever be put to shame. Now, you need to be prepared to defend the reliability of Scripture, all right? It's not empty-headed, but my point here is to ensure that your trust remains cemented in the word of God and that you never fall for that temptation that comes from the mouth of our enemy, which is to question the reliability or truth of Scripture. This is why doctrine matters, by the way. I've used words, inerrant. Do you all know what inerrant means? An inspiration, right? That every word of the Bible has been inspired by God. These are crucial. Do you know why? Because if we don't say every word of the Bible has been inspired by the Spirit of God, what, what is the serpent going to say then? None of them are? Or... Pick and choose. Yes, Thomas Jefferson. Do you know what he did with the Bible? He cut, up, he cut the Bible up to remove all those portions that he did not like, right? And if you say, if we grant that inspiration is limited to the, in the Bible, then we get to do the same thing. Because those portions that aren't inspired, we can ignore them. They're inaccurate. They're outmoded. They're outdated. And let me tell you something. There are professing evangelicals out there who do this there's a man named paul jewett and when it comes to the ordination of women he says that paul was wrong when he was writing to timothy and says i do not allow a woman to have authority over a man paul was wrong he was mistaken we're more enlightened now than paul was we have cell phones and starbucks and 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 okay how did Paul Jewett get there? 
because he fell for these things. God's wrong. God's mistaken. Culture will teach us better. What happens to culture when it's separated from the word of God? What do you think happens to it? It goes straight down. It falls apart. It does what our culture is currently doing. So listen, I want to get very specific with you for a few moments before I'm through. It seems to me that there are three general deceitful schemes or three lies that the American church has largely fallen for. And in believing these lies, she has allowed herself to be disarmed. And I mean lies in regard to the word of God specifically. And the genius of these schemes is that you only need to believe in one of them in order to be disarmed. Right? So I, as I see it, trying to be aware of the enemy's schemes, I see three at work in our culture. And you only need to fall for one of them to be rendered disarmed and taken captive. These are the three lies about scripture. I'll list them for you. The first, it is unreliable. The second, it is unclear. And the third, it is ineffective. And I want to respond to each of them now so that you will not fall prey to them. Let's, t- let's think about that first lie I mentioned, that the Bible is unreliable. It's full of errors and contradictions. Some Christians, and it seems to me in an increasing number, are willing to grant this point. And you, and you may not see that. For, for pastors, though, we see some of the theological battles that are raging because we try to pay attention to those things. You have lives to live, all right? And you can't concern yourselves with that. I understand that. But you do need to know that there is a battle over the Word of God that has been going on now for a century or more, even among evangelicals. And that's what's so disconcerting about it, is that you have evangelical pastors now who are denying things like the total inspiration of Scripture and the inerrancy of the Word of God and the authority of Scripture. A man named Peter Enns, who, how many of you have heard, Peter, have heard of Peter Enns? He was at Westminster Seminary East, which is supposed to be a fortress of good biblical theology and good doctrine. And he had to be released from that seminary because he was denying these things. And we are told, according to those who would say the Bible is unreliable, you know, some people who say the Christians who say the Bible is unreliable, they only want to say it's unreliable to a point, right? So it's unreliable in most things. It's really unreliable when it comes to the Old Testament history and all all that stuff, that weird stuff that happened back there. But it is reliable when it comes to teaching on personal salvation, right? So it's only authoritative when it tells me how to be saved from my sins. Other than that, though, It has no authority. It has no effectiveness. And the advantage that this deception affords our enemy is that the Bible's authority is then limited by its unreliability. If I grant the Bible is unreliable, then it cannot be trusted as the highest standard of truth and the judge of all other philosophies and worldviews. And if I'm going to grant that, guess what I can't do? That means I cannot destroy the arguments and lofty opinions of our age with Scripture. Do you follow? I can't destroy them or tear them down. Actually, the Word of God becomes subject to those lofty opinions at that point. Those lofty opinions correct the Word of God for me and show me where Paul was so wrong and backwards in what he was saying. So we can't say the Bible's unreliable because it is not. 
is true and just trustworthy. Let's talk about the next lie, that the Bible is unclear. This is an exceedingly dangerous one. Exceedingly dangerous. And it is common. I run into it frequently as a pastor. Alex, you're nodding, so I'm guessing that you run into it as well. If Jake were awake, he probably would tell us that he has <laughs> also. The Bible is prone to multiple interpretations. That's what we're told. I hear this mostly from professing Christians. I don't hear this from, from the opponents of the faith. I hear this most from professing Christians, usually who are wrapped up in sin and don't want to be confronted and don't want to repent, who want to tell me, what? That's your interpretation. I'll never forget one time when I was pastoring at another church I had, uh, there was a, a daughter of a family who was dating a nice man, but an unbelieving man. And I told the family, I, told, I showed them what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, and I said, she cannot be marrying uh, or, or courted, being courted by an unbelieving man. She, may not, she has to marry in the Lord. And the parents really liked this young man. And the mother especially did not want to hear what I was saying. Did not want to hear what the word of God was saying. And she fought me on it when I told her, your daughter cannot be courted by this man. He's not a believer. And she said, well, you're wrong. That's just your interpretation of what Paul is saying. That's your interpretation. So I said, okay, I'll grant that. Maybe I'm wrong. So tell me what it does mean. And she says to me, well, I, I'm not sure what it means, but I do, mean, I do know it doesn't mean what you think it means. <laughs> oh. Lord, spare me from ever presenting such an argument. How many of you also have heard that the Calvinists have their verses and the Arminians have theirs, and so here we have a Bible that's contradicting itself and it's schizophrenic and, do, and God wasn't quite sure what he's trying to say. right? Or you also have the occasion where the Bible study leader will sit everyone down in a circle and we'll all go around and say, what does this passage mean to me? What does this passage mean to me? It means different things to all of us. And so that also means that implies that we shouldn't impose our interpretation upon one another. Right? Because the Bible belongs in the private box. With my own private interpretation. And this kind of thinking, it's often promoted as some sort of pious humility. Right? That I'm, going, I'm not going to act with any kind of certainty in regard to my interpretation of Scripture. I'm going to be humble. I'm going to wring my hands a lot and say, well, in my opinion, I think this is what God meant when he said that. But I'm just a man and I'm not sure, so I'm not going to judge you if you disagree. All right. And so we all sit around, we have the Bible, and none of us are quite sure as to what God is actually saying. Understand that that kind of, of posturing that looks so much like humility, it's a postmodern move, all right? And it is not humility. It is not humility ever to say, but this is just my interpretation. It is not humility, but rebellion against Christ. It is to say that Scripture cannot be accurately interpreted. That when God gave us his word, he mumbled, he stuttered. And we can't be quite clear as to what he is saying to us. And do you know what that does? Well, here's what it does. If scripture is not clear, 
then it is not profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. If we cannot interpret it clearly, then we cannot use it to teach, reprove, correct, and train. And that means those arguments and lofty opinions that we are supposed to be tearing down, they go uncorrected and instead are permitted to fester because we don't know what to do. We're not sure how to interpret the word of God. And we're taken captive. I'll give you an example, another example of this. I one time had a conversation with a theologian who was a professing evangelical Christian, and he was also pro-choice to an extent. He was for the murder of babies in the womb. He thought that that was okay, and you could, that you could hold that position as a Christian. And I talked with him and said, well, how can, how can you be a follower of Jesus and say that cutting up a child in the womb is okay and not murder? And his response to me was, the Bible is not clear. He appealed to the lack of Scripture's clarity. On what point? On when life begins. The Bible does not tell us ver, you know, very clearly at all when a fetus becomes a human being or is alive. So therefore, abortion is not necessarily murder for that reason. Do you see what happens when we say the Bible's not clear? Do you see what the enemy can do with that? He can, he can get the people of God agreeing with the idolaters who think that slaughtering children in their mother's wombs is acceptable. That's what he can do when we, when we grant, yeah, it's not clear. It's foolish. It's cowardly. It's cowardly because it gives us an out. It allows us to succumb to that pressure that I talked about earlier, to become like the world so they'll stop making fun of us so much. By saying the Bible's not clear, that gives us an out to play the coward so that we can say, we can agree with the world and fit in with everybody rather than standing out like a sore thumb because of our faith and obedience to Christ. Here's the other lie, the third and final. The Bible is ineffective. The Bible is ineffective. It is useless to make an appeal to Scripture in the public square because the public doesn't believe in Christ. The Bible only applies in church. So we must instead make our appeal for change and reform through moral arguments which are not distinctly Christian. Have you heard of this argument before? The Bible belongs in the church. The world doesn't believe the word of God. I can't quote the Bible in Congress or to my mayor, or to whoever, because he doesn't know Christ, he doesn't care what Christ says, he's not a believer, so it's not going to matter. So I have to rely on some other authority or argument to try and bring about real change in my culture. And what do people appeal to? What do well-intended, well-meaning Christians who say this thing, that the Bible cannot be applied in the public square, what else do they appeal to then when they are in the public square? The sanctity of life, right? What's that? It's the sanctity of life. Why is life why is it sacred? Because babies are cute. No. We appeal. We end up appealing to standards and virtues like the sanctity of life, whatever that is, liberty, justice, and marriage. And yada, yada, yada. All these principles and values that are nothing but impersonal abstractions. 
Realize that this kind of thinking is not at all Christian. It takes truth and it makes truth impersonal. Okay? Truth now becomes this impersonal principle somewhere up there on the ether that we need to subscribe to and follow. But that's not what Scripture tells us about truth. Scripture tells us that Christ is the truth. Truth is personal in nature. It is not impersonal. So we are, what we're doing when we go into the public square and we lay aside the word of God and we appeal to some sort of standard aside from Christ and his word, what we are doing is setting aside Christianity as a whole and adopting a worldly philosophy to make our argument. We are exchanging the sword of the spirit for something that we've been given by men. Do you understand what happens there? And is that thing we've exchanged the word of God for going to be effective in tearing down idols? Absolutely not. Genius plan. It's a genius plan because it lets us feel like we're actually doing something when the whole time we're not doing anything at all. We're going into battle with that light-up Star Wars lightsaber, and we're going to get hacked to pieces. We're going to get hacked to pieces. Those kinds of arguments have no divine power. They cannot destroy strongholds. So what do we do? We have to do something that very few Christians are doing, and that's why I'm preaching these things to you, because you need to begin doing them. You do. At your university. And when you're done with the university, and the life that follows after that, you need to wield the sword of the Spirit out in public. That's what you must do. Because faith comes by hearing. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. And I want to respond to that criticism that the unbelievers in the public square don't believe in the word of God. They don't believe in Christ, so it's useless to quote that to them. Of course our enemy wants us to believe that. Because what is the primary means that the Spirit uses to convert sinners to Christ? The word of God. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing. So what, what does our culture need? Does our culture merely need more moral reform and policy change? No. Our culture needs conversion. Our culture needs regeneration. Sinners who have been born again. If we're going to see that happen, what do we as the church need to begin doing? Preaching the word. Preaching the word. Not appealing to abstract truth. Appealing to to the word of God, calling them to repentance to Christ and faith in Christ. And then they'll be converted by God's grace as the Spirit works through our preaching. So, of course, our enemy wants us to keep Scripture in the can when talking with unbelievers. Because that way we're not, we're not proclaiming to them Christ crucified. We're not using the means God has given us to convert sinners as the Spirit works through our preaching. I'll wrap it up with this, brothers and sisters. Finally, and most importantly, you need to obey the Word of God in your own life. Absolutely critical. Because if you're not, you're, you're going to be useless in the fight. If your own hearts are not being pierced by the preaching of the Word, if your own sin is not being confronted and leading you to repentance, you absolutely have to join a church where the pastors are going to divide your heart with the word. And I say that to you, and I'm not trying to make a pitch for clear note, although I am also at the same time. 
all right? But wherever you end up, wherever God takes you, you have to be in a church where the pastors pierce your heart with the word of God. Do you know what I mean when I say that to you? They're not, you need pastors who are not going to let you off the hook. They are going to pursue you in love, but they're going to deal with you, and they're going to apply scripture to your life, and they're going to make it hurt when it needs to hurt, and they're going to encourage you when you need to be encouraged, but they're not going to hold back. I have to say this to you because you're going to have to look hard for a church like that. Know that. Those kinds of churches are not common today. Not common at all. Many pastors blunt the word of God. They do not apply, the, apply it faithfully to their believers because they want to keep their numbers up. And the moment you start actually faithfully applying the word of God to people's hearts, you often find them leaving because it's uncomfortable. People don't want their sin confronted. You have to be willing to have your sin confronted by other believers and especially by your pastors. And you need to be in a church where that is going to be done. Because if we have good doctrine about the Bible on paper, and many, most churches do, most evangelical churches have a sterling statement of faith in regard to the Bible. But if that word is not applied to your own hearts and lives, then your doctrine is pointless and it's not worth the paper that it's printed on. You understand? So that's my exhortation to you. Believe the word of God. It's not rocket science, is it? I'm not calling you to do anything new or innovative. I'm just calling you to hold fast to what you've been given. But make sure the word is being applied to your own heart and make sure that you find yourself and put yourself in a church where it's going to be applied to your heart very intentionally so that you can engage in the fight in front of us effectively. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the word that you have given us. We pray you help us to believe your word in spite of the pressure we receive from the world to reject the Bible to hold it in suspicion, to say it is not inspired, it is not authoritative. Help us, Lord, to not cave to that pressure, but to instead boldly, gladly, and freely declare Christ as Lord and to declare your word to those around us. And Lord, we pray that as we do so, you will protect us from being taken captive by human traditions. And we also pray that you, your spirit will work through our faithful preaching, bringing sinners to faith in Christ, and changing the very fabric of our nation. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.